0: I'm an extremely stable genius. Extremely stable genius. Stable genius.
1: The broadcast as heard on KPFK, 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. Elsewhere in California on KFOI, Red Bluff, Redding, KKRN, Round Mountain, KGOE, Eureka. In Oregon on KYAQ, Central Coast, Queso Cottage Grove, and KEPW, Eugene. On Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii on KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palenville, New York, WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan, WPRR. New Orleans, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN. Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ. Seattle on KDOX, Goldendale, Wisconsin, KVGD. Janesville, Wisconsin, WADR. Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM 950, KTNF, and coast to coast and around the globe streaming on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, blanketing the globe five days a week usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com. Today you have me, Angie Cuero, host of In Deep with Angie Cuero, heard on many of these same stations and streams. Now this is just breaking as I crack open the microphone here. Donald Trump is once again giving Congress and by extension the electorate a big fat middle finger. Although the Republicans and Democrats were united, united against the move, Trump will go ahead with 22 deals worth 8 billion dollars selling battle equipment to Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and other countries. According to The Washington Post, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo notified lawmakers on Friday Trump is invoking his emergency authority to sidestep Congress and complete 22 arms deals. Both Republicans and Democrats urged the Trump administration not to take the rare step of exploiting a legal window to push through the deals. Pompeo's notification letters effectively gave the Trump administration a green light to conclude the sale and transfer of mortar bombs, missile drones, repair and maintenance services to aid the Saudi air fleet, and a controversial sale of precision-guided munitions that lawmakers fear Saudi Arabia may use against civilians in Yemen's civil war. Senator Robert Menendez, the ranking Democrat on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Said in a statement Friday, Trump had, quote, failed once again to prioritize our long-term national security interests or stand up for human rights. So what's new? Also just coming in from Reuters, not good news. The Supreme Court on Friday blocked lower court rulings ordering Republican legislators in Michigan and Ohio to redraw U.S. congressional maps ahead of the next election. Democrats had argued the electoral districts were intended to unlawfully diminish their political clout. The justices granted requests from the GOP lawmakers in both states to put the decisions on hold. They didn't provide any explanation. Well, I'm sure the heads of the FBI, CIA, and other intelligence divisions of the government are thrilled, just thrilled today, with another Trump imperial edict. He just gave Attorney General William Barr, quote, complete and full authority to declassify government secrets related to alleged spying on the Trump campaign. Note the alleged. Although Barr has already made it clear, he believes it. This is the guy who now has carte blanche to declassify intelligence the intelligence agencies themselves have chosen to keep classified, not up to them anymore. William Barr, who has already proven himself an unreliable narrator with the release of the Mueller report. Now he gets to see, digest, and filter for public discourse the information he gets to see about the alleged spying. Now, there's going to be all kinds of fallout from this. Let's go first to analysis by The Washington Post's Aaron Blake. Here's what he's got to say. What could go wrong? The answer is plenty. If past is prologue, Barr's own conduct and past comments about this whole situation don't suggest a studiously neutral arbiter of what the public needs to know. The most pertinent example is Bard's stewardship of the Mueller report, for which his initial summary drew a remarkable written rebuke from Robert Mueller himself. Barr said Mueller didn't reach a conclusion on obstruction of justice, when, in fact, Mueller said he decided he couldn't accuse Trump of a crime regardless of the evidence. Barr said Trump had recently been cleared of collusion. Quotations when in fact Mueller's report explicitly said it wasn't dealing with collusion and that the evidence of a conspiracy was insufficient rather than exonerating, etc. Now Barr has repeatedly, this is still the Washington Post, Barr has repeatedly called what the FBI did vis-à-vis former Trump campaign advisor Carter Page spying even though the intelligence community I'm so excited I can't speak, even though the intelligence community bristles at that characterization. FBI Director Christopher Wray said the term is not apt. Barr gave a recent interview to Fox News in which he repeatedly called what the FBI had done strange and said the explanations weren't adding up. And he said as early as 2017, the FBI was abdicating its responsibility. Wow, if I were in the FBI today, would just be a banner day, wouldn't it? Blake, however, does note it's entirely possible a fair review will be conducted, but he makes a damned good case that it won't. New York Times brings up an even grimmer note. The person who informed on the Russian campaign interference in 2016 is close to Vladimir Putin. It is believed they still are. Now, those secrets go public. William Barr gets full reign, especially if Trump believes it will make him look like the victim here. They go public, and that person's life might be at stake. Going to the New York Times, The concern about the source is one of several issues raised by Mr. Trump's decision to use the intelligence to pursue his political enemies. It has prompted fears from former national security officials and Democratic lawmakers that other sources or methods of intelligence gathering could be made public, not because of leaks to the news media that the administration denounces, but because the president has determined it suits his political purposes. It raises the specter that officials ranging from the FBI to the CIA to the National Security Agency, which was monitoring Russian officials, will be questioned about their sources and their intent. The order could be tremendously damaging, drying up sources, inhibiting their ability to gather intelligence. That's from Adam Schiff who said the president now seems intent on declassifying intelligence to weaponize it. There goes Donnie again, putting the country over his personal interest. Just kidding. You know, even if you despise Trump, you have to give him this. He gave his support to a $19 billion disaster aid bill that did not include funding for his border hijinks. Now, he said he wouldn't, but then he did. He gave it his blessing. However, that wasn't enough for likewise tantrum-inclined Republican Chip Roy of Texas. With his sole vote, he blocked money for the fire victims in California, the still-desperate hurricane victims in Puerto Rico, and, well, more or less every recovery effort in the United States. The Senate passed its version on Thursday. Even that Republican stronghold saw the benefit that actual Americans were waiting for. But it is stymied now, one vote, one guy, complaining about the swamp, because he wanted border project funding and less of an impact on the deficit. Presumably, he then stepped into his limousine and sailed off to his own intact and safe housing. By the way, old Chip is Ted Cruz's former chief of staff. So let's go to Nancy Pelosi. What exactly is her game plan? I'll tell you, it doesn't matter whether you like her or not. What's key in her interactions this week with President Babyman is that she is smart as a whip. She is smart. Thursday's verbal ballet was really something. As The Guardian UK noted, quote, Nancy Pelosi has spent the past 48 hours doing to Trump what he has done to so many others. She lifted up his skin, got under it, and began scratching furiously. I'm about to play you an excerpt from her weekly press address, listen to the contrast between her style and Trump's calm versus ballistic, measured versus bombastic, methodical versus disorganized. Part of what she does is refuse to play to a Trump-sympathetic audience by adopting his cadence and hysteria. She knows that's not who she's talking to. She's playing to people who prefer facts, people who are willing to sit down and listen, and to Donald Trump, tweaking his nose at every opportunity. The other thing to listen for, and I'm going to play these all for you, is her subtle scattering of disparagements, or even more subtle than that, just question marks, about Trump's motivations, stability, and trustworthiness. These are edited excerpts from her address.
2: Yesterday, as you know, Democrats went to the White House prepared to offer the president the opportunity to launch an historic infrastructure initiative. We had met three weeks before. The idea that we and it was a good, positive meeting— about how we build the infrastructure of our country, roads, bridges, mass transit, broadband in rural areas and in underserved urban areas as well, water systems, both wastewater and safe, clean drinking water, infrastructure for our satellites so that our technology works here. Uh, For all of these things, we were optimistic. We also were hoping for housing and school construction uh, as a further part of the conversation. But the question is, it? Paid for. And the president was going to, pr- the plan was, as we agreed at the meeting three weeks ago, the president was to present his proposals at yesterday's meeting. Well, everyone, uh, he started making, s- sending signals that he may not be, he might not be ready or interested. The night before, he sent us a letter ch- to Chuck Schumer and, and to me saying that he doesn't want to do infrastructure until we do the US, Mexico, Canada. If that's not the accurate, character. some people call it after nafta some call it NAFTA 2.0, but anyway, that trade agreement, and that was a strange juxtaposition, but nonetheless, uh, the next day you know what happened. I think what happened, he says it's because of cover-up, and I know that that strikes a chord with him, and he's afraid of cover-up, but uh, afraid of being accused of cover-up.
1: Afraid. He's Afraid. She knows how much his manly man act matters to him, and in Trump world, men have no fear. She could just see him squirming. Then she moves
2: on to his court losses. So Mazur was a setback for him, and then he must have known the Deutsche Bank decision uh, would be consistent, but in any event, uh, to inoculate against its um, presentation, he, he pulled a stunt. Now, I truly believe that the president has a bag of tricks and the White House has a bag of tricks that they save for certain occasions. They don't necessarily apply to the occasion, but they're a distraction, which is his, his master of distraction. We will all agree on that. That's something he does well, to distract from problems that he has. He changes, the, tries to change the subject.
1: She sets him up and knocks him down like a bowling pin. She acknowledges his bag of tricks, then points out they are irrelevant. To the matters at
2: hand and while he tried to say it's because i said cover up we've been saying cover up for a while and our nine o'clock meeting was a meeting we have anyway so it had nothing to do with him but i think what really got to him was that these court cases and the fact that the house democratic caucus is not on a path to impeachment and that's where he wants us to be and when he saw that that was not happening that again, with the cover-up, which he understands is true, just struck a chord.
1: Okay, at this point, you can just see the steam coming out of his ears. She knows that. She says cover-up not once, not twice, but three times. And she busts him on, all right, this is debatable, that he wants impeachment. Whether it's true, why it would be depends on who's asserting it. He didn't want the job in the first place, or he thinks it would empower his re-election campaign. But either way. She's throwing it into his court. She's giving him even more that he has to refute. He's going to run out of hands to catch with at this point. And I'm not going to play this part for you, but she gives depth and context to the infrastructure issues with a history lesson on Thomas Jefferson. Lewis and Clark, Teddy Roosevelt, Dwight Eisenhower weaves the whole things together. Now, I might be projecting here, but given a White House occupant who probably thinks Lewis and Clark is a barbecue joint, this just points up his failings. Then she sets up and knocks down again. She delineates
2: everything he's now turning his back on, and then all right, listen to this. So what we're talking about now, infrastructure. The president says I word. I thought he was talking about infrastructure, <laughs> roads, bridges, ma- mass transit. I said said some of these things already, uh, and I thought we could give him the opportunity to make a historic contribution uh, to the safety because it's a safety measure. Uh, Commer- it's about commerce, it's about safety, it's about mobility, product to market and the rest. It's about clean air, clean water, it's about a better future for our country, much needed billions, trillions of dollars in deficit in terms of uh, uh, no, low or no maintenance that we haven't afforded. It's never been by, it's never been partisan. We don't want it to be partisan now. Uh, but I, I can only think that he wasn't up to the task of figuring out the difficult choices of how to uh, cover the cost of what the important infrastructure legislation uh, that we had talked about three weeks before. Ouch! I can only think that he wasn't up to the task. And now the dagger sharpened and glistening, she thrusts it in. So, uh, so, but the president again stormed out. I think what first pound the table, walk out the door. Next time, have the TV cameras in there while I have my say. That didn't work for him either. And now this time, another temper tantrum. uh, um, Again, I pray for the president of the United States. I wish that his family or his administration or his staff would have an intervention for the good of the country. My goodness. Then a reporter
1: asks why she, I'm paraphrasing this here, why she's giving mixed signals about a willingness to impeach.
2: Uh, Let me be really very clear. Uh, The president's behavior in terms of his obstruction of justice, the things that he is doing, it's very clear. It's in plain sight. It cannot be denied. Ignoring subpoenas, obstruction of justice. Yes, these could be impeachable offenses. There are three things. We want to follow the facts to get the truth to the American people, with a recognition, two, that no one is above the law, and three, that the president is engaged in a cover-up. And that is what my statement is. Have- How we deal with it is a decision that our caucus makes, and our caucus is very much saying, whatever we do, we need to be ready when we do it. And I do think that impeachment is a very divisive place to go in our country. And what we can get the facts to the American people through our investigation, it may take us to a place that is unavoidable in terms of impeachment, or not. Uh, But we're not at that place yet. What about now? A reporter asks, would she be open to meeting again with the president? Of course. Of course. I mean, you know, we're dealing with a situation that is becoming more predictable, Uh, but I do think that we have a responsibility to try to find common ground. It's funny you asked that question, Casey, Casey, because yesterday I was going to start the meeting in terms of, of course, putting it in historic perspective, as I have done here, but also to say we're very busy people, the leaders in the Congress, especially the President of the United States, I think. I think. <laughs> a meeting between the leaders of the Congress and the President is an historic meeting. This is not a casual coming together of Democrats and Republicans. This is a, this is a historic meeting. It's the leadership of the the legislative branch, the first branch of government, and the President of the United States. So let's make it count for something. Let's really make it count for something by dint of preparation, by dint of respect for each other's views, understanding that we'll have to yield on points uh, to get results for the American people. Uh, but. Um, he obviously did not, was not prepared by dint of preparation. He was not prepared, and so he used some excuse to go out the door. All right, you can't tell me she just didn't do this bit on purpose. Of the, the legislative branch, the first branch of government and the president of the United States. The first branch. In the last few moments of the press conference, listen to this. We're not saying, as the president said, if you don't... Um, if you don't stop investigating me, if you don't stop honoring your oath of office, I can't work with you. That's basically what he's saying. Maybe he wants to take a leave of absence. I don't know.
1: Maybe he wants to take a leave of absence, and she licks the envelope closed with this.
3: And can you also explain the comment you made about
0: the staff an intervention?
2: The what intervention?
0: You made a comment that
2: you. Thought uh, it was- Oh, I thought you said statutory infant intervention. <laughs> that would be good. Article 25. <laughs> Troublemaker. <laughs> but that's a good idea. I'm glad you suggested it. I'll take it up with my caucus. <laughs> Not that they haven't been thinking about it. But your support will be important to them. <laughs> then the coup de grace. I actually ardently pray for the president, because we need I don't know. Sometimes when we're talking to him, he's un- he agrees. And then I, I said one time, who's in charge here? Because you agree and then all of a sudden something changes. What goes on there? Who's in charge? Uh, and he says he's in charge and I suspect that he may be. And I suspect he may be even more since yesterday because I don't think that any responsible Assistant to the President of the United States would have advised him to do what he did yesterday. That's it. Thank you all.
3: Bye-bye.
2: Like I said, it doesn't matter how you feel about Nancy
1: Pelosi. She's very, very good at what she does. By the way, both Facebook and Twitter, as of the moment I'm speaking these words, has refused to remove altered video of Nancy Pelosi that messes with her speech pattern. Both Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani tweeted out to fan the flames that something's wrong with her. Facebook muttered something about free speech, which it usually does when it defends spreading fake news. Coming up, a professor of law analyzes Trump's no good, very bad week. That is next on the (laughs) broadcast.
0: Hi, this is Brad. My thanks to those who stopped by Bradblog.com/slash donate to sign up for a subscription to the Bradcast of any amount you like. We rely on you to stay on your public airwaves. Please grab a subscription at Bradblog.comslash donate. Thank you
1: the broadcast, I'm Angie Cuero, in for Brad and Dez today. So, a couple court findings that did not go his way. A so-called impromptu Rose Garden press conference that was widely mocked as a temper tantrum. Donald Trump has had better weeks. He even felt compelled to return to his old refrain. I'm an extremely stable genius. Hint for Donnie. When you have to keep saying that, something just might be wrong. I had a talk with Professor David Levine of UC Berkeley. We went over the court judgments that Trump lost. A lot of good insight here.
0: Uh, The administration has taken a position in those two cases, that the judges are just, I think, are having a hard time keeping their eyeballs in their sockets when they're they're listening, watching these arguments, which is that somehow Congress does not have the power to initiate oversight and that that, uh, they can't just ask for these things unless they have some specific legislative purpose, and somehow the administration gets to decide if the purpose is legitimate or not. And these two courts have just said, uh, you got to be kidding. Uh, That's not the way it works, and have both ordered those uh, subpoenas to be enforced.
1: Well, I'll tell you, there's one thing that Trump's attorney said that I think bears examination. I'm not a legal person. You are, but as a layperson, this made sense to me. They said there's no way to unring the bell once the banks give Congress the requested information. The committee will have reviewed confidential documents that this court may later determine were illegally subpoenaed. And if this is going to be appealed, it strikes me that that argument has some validity.
0: Uh, well, that, that is true, but these judges felt that the argument was so weak that they were not willing to issue a stay pending appeal now the, what the administration can do is that they can go to the higher courts in the one case it's the dc circuit and in the other it's the second circuit to say please give us a stay pending appeal we intend to appeal these rulings and because of that problem of not being able to unring the bell if you will uh... please give us a stay but these two lower court judges are so unimpressed with the president's argument that they're not willing to give him the benefit of the doubt on that.
1: Well, the subpoenas that are out, is there any, and I'm asking you to kind of sense what's out there in the ether, is there any advantage to those third parties to hold out and wait for an appeal? Or is it in their best interest as businesses and as corporate citizens to just step up and give the records?
0: Well, they're better off waiting until uh, everything is final, Uh, I think that that's a perfectly legitimate thing to do, um, because they know that there's a good possibility of an appeal here, and at least some possibility that a stay will be issued. And that is going to happen in short order if the stay, if these circuit courts are inclined to grant an emergency stay, that will happen very quickly, uh, whether it's by the end of this week or early next week, one way or the other. So it doesn't really hurt these institutions to just wait a few days before they comply with the subpoena.
1: Our interview was airing live on KGO in San Francisco, so at that point we opened up the phone to questions.
0: Yeah, I had a question. So it seems like the administration's stonewalling. And after these two cases are appealed to the appellate court, and let's say they over, they say the same thing, I have no doubt that the president will then uh, appeal it to the Supreme Court. And that may take time. My question is this. If the, if the House goes immediately to impeachment hearings and the administration still stonewalls, would that go through the same appellate process or would it go immediately to the Supreme Court? Oh, that's really interesting. Uh, in the uh, United States versus Nixon case, it moved quite quickly uh, when uh, the special prosecutor there, Leon Jaworski, was going after the tapes. Uh, they, right. they really were able to move in a matter of weeks. So if the Supreme Court wanted to intervene, they could intervene quickly. Think Bush versus Gore. Uh, we may or may not like the result in Bush versus Gore, but the Supreme Court issued uh, opinions twice in a very short period of time. So if they really felt time was of the essence, they could move pretty quickly. It's not the normal course of business, of course, but they could move relatively quickly.
1: And finally, our caller cut to the chase. When all is said and done, he asked, if Trump is shown to be guilty of anything, can he pardon himself?
0: Uh, We don't know yet, because no president has ever tried it. And even if he were to pardon himself, Uh, The rubber wouldn't meet the road, if you will, until some prosecutor decided, I don't care what the president did. That's just a piece of paper. I'm going to indict the president, or let's say I'm going to indict the former president, because it's more likely to happen when and if he leaves office. And then a judge would have to uh, decide whether or not that uh, purported self-pardon was valid or not. But until then, we just don't know. You have to have a prosecutor take that additional step before we learn whether that's something real or whether it's just a piece of paper suitable for framing.
1: You mentioned a prosecutor possibly intervening at that point, but who has standing to bring suit if the president decides to pardon himself?
0: Well, any prosecutor who thinks that the president committed some crimes that uh, it, that's within their jurisdiction. And Mr. Mueller's report is quite clear on this, saying... Uh, part of the why the, why they did the work that they did was so that evidence could be preserved while they could obtain the documents while memories were still fresh. So that and one of the scenarios was uh, after Mr. Trump leaves office. Uh, let's suppose there was money laundering that took place with a variety of transactions in with New York City real estate or Florida real estate perhaps involving Deutsche Bank, perhaps involving Russians, and there, there are various state and or federal crimes that might have been committed. So a prosecutor, let's say the New York attorney general, let's say the, the uh, U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, says, you know what, uh, I think that uh, something illegal happened, and it's within the statute of limitations, and so I'm going to file an indictment. And then the response would be, oh, wait a minute, he pardoned himself, and then a judge would have to sort that out at that point. Got
1: it. Another scenario. Let's talk about the fact that right now there are serious infrastructure problems throughout the United States. We've seen bridges fall down. We, we, you know, we've we're all looking at highways, federal roads with potholes galore, and there are some some implications of bad infrastructure that are much more serious than getting your tire bent out of shape. Is there anyone withstanding to say that? because the president is holding this hostage, holding infrastructure discussions and funds hostage to what's going on with his own investigations, that he and or the federal government can be sued to release some infrastructure funds to get something done?
0: No. Uh, You know, if there's money that's in the pipeline, that's one thing uh, already promised. But, But to say, look, you all need to get together and do your jobs, the short is no. I mean, after all, the House could pass... A revenue bill, the House could pass an infrastructure bill if they wanted to. Mm. The problem is that it would die in the Senate because there 's nothing the McConnell wants to do if, it's, if the Democrats have initiated it um, so there 's nothing holding back that process. The reason to negotiate with the President is so that you can you have everybody on board so that something can happen smoothly but unfortunately, we can 't sue these members of Congress uh, to say, do your jobs. The answer to that is November 2020. If you don't think your representative has done his or her job, well, vote them out of office.
1: Boy, that would be a whole different world if you could sue and say, do your jobs. (laughs) Right,
0: right. Can't do it. Right. Can't do it.
1: That's Professor David Levine of UC Berkeley's Hastings School of Law. The Trump administration has put a full stop on the move to put Harriet Tubman on the $20 bill. It is more pandering to the racists who see a shining leader in the man with the orange comb over. It is irrelevant whether Trump is racist himself. He's busy catering to them. White supremacists, disenfranchised and fearful white people in the lower classes looking for someone to blame. These are his audience. His election was the culmination of American rejection of first a black president and then a woman candidate. So there was no way a black woman was going to show up on one of our greenbacks on his watch. You know what else I think is at work here? I think it's Trump's inherent jealousy at anyone he really knows to be better than him. Harriet Tubman, with a life of fearless sacrifice, she risked her life to help others. She had a fierce devotion to right and justice. She just plain makes him look bad. So I talked recently with historian Elizabeth Cobbs. She's got a new novel out based on a little-known chapter of Tubman's life. She was a spy and a scout for Union forces, putting together a night raid to free hundreds of slaves in just a few hours. So we talked about how consistent
4: that was with everything else Tubman had done in her life. I mean, this was a person who was unlike anyone else in American history in this period of time. She not only um, volunteered, so to speak, for 11 years on the Underground Railroad, which is a very dangerous, you know, self-assignment, you might say, Um, She's the, I don't know of only one other person we have documented historically who went back as much as Harriet Tubman did and freed probably as many people she did or in that same vicinity. We don't know, again, we don't know all of this thing, precise stuff precisely because she was, what she was doing was a crime. Mm -hmm. If you're operate clandestinely, you're not going to document, you're not going to take selfies and post them on Facebook. You know, (laughs) as as the CIA says, sources and methods are strictly confidential, Because if you do, you risk exposure. So what we do have is very consistent with this historical record of things she did for 11 years Mm -hmm. on the Underground Railroad. And then she served for three years with the Union Army in the occupied South. And she's this puny thing. I mean, she's like five feet tall. She's probably 110 pounds wet. You know, and she's really good at disguising herself. She just looks like an average person. In fact, she looks like, I want to say, less than an average person. Mm-hmm. She has um, a disability. You know, that's one of the things you might learn if you don't know already about her. Um, she was disabled as a child, from a blow from a, uh, an overseer uh, hit her in the head on accident. But um, she suffered traumatic brain injury that gave her lifelong epilepsy. So she had a scar over her left eyebrow. So, you know, so people were really, she was somebody people were really ready to underestimate, which was fantastic <laughs> from the point of view of what she wanted to accomplish. Uh, but with her, I mean, she had different kinds of damage. She had the, the um, what we think is probably would be d- d- described today as a temporal lobe epilepsy, which meant that she could, without warning, lose consciousness. Now, by the way, we've all heard of disabled veterans, but imagine somebody who goes into the armed forces disabled, who goes in knowing I have this against me, but, you know, what is my choice? My choice is I have to do this thing. So um, the other thing about her that I struggled with, and I don't know if you noticed this, Angie, and maybe you probably did because I know you read very closely, but um, she had a tooth missing.
1: Well, in fact, I had that down to ask you about because... It, there's that. There's that line. When you're reading historical fiction, you come across some story parts of the story. And you go, "Wow, okay, was that part true?" And she knocked that out with a pistol. She had a damaged tooth and knocked
4: it out with a pistol. Was that? That is the story that we have. Yeah, that was reported. And and different people. Who, of course, she was an observed person. So some of the um, information we have on her is from people who had met her, and then would describe what she looked like and that kind of thing, and uh, and. People mentioned that she had a tooth missing, and the story that she told and that we came to us is that, that she was on a mission on the Underground Railroad and got a toothache and just like, you know, oh, my God, it was just bad, you know, and so she just took her pistol and knocked out her own tooth. Elizabeth Cobbs, her book is The
1: Tubman Command. Our whole conversation is online at indeepradio.com. Next up, a blatant effort to pack the courts in the best sense of the phrase. I'm Angie Cairo. This is the broadcast. <laughs>
0: The court's in session. The court's in session now. Here come the judge. Here come the judge. Here come the
2: judge! It's the broadcast. I'm Angie
1: Quiro. Kate Kendall served as executive director of the National Center for Lesbian Rights for 22 years. Before she stepped down early in 2018, she is still an activist fighter. But now she has switched her focus to the Supreme Court. Pack the Courts at packthecourts.org is dedicated to expanding the number of justice seats on the Supreme Court to seize control from what's become a right-wing activist power. That sounds pretty radical, but listen up. She does make a decent case. She joined me in the studios of KGO 810 in San Francisco, and I'm bringing you our conversation with their kind permission. Pack the courts. What is this thing?
3: Well, I think probably anyone listening recognizes that we have a Supreme Court that has been thoroughly degraded, at least the majority of the Supreme Court, uh, riven with special interests, uh, and really they've become partisan hacks Mm -hmm. for doing the bidding of the most extreme elements of the GOP. And so when you're a progressive, you care about democracy, you want to save democracy, you have one of two options. You either sit back and watch democracy fail, you watch voting rights stripped, you watch gerrymandered states become the law of the land, um, you watch our climate be degraded and you watch the civil liberties of individuals and particularly the most vulnerable be completely undermined mm-hmm. and you do nothing or you hand wring or you um, worry about it and you kvetch with your friends or you actually say, what the hell would we do right. if we did something bold? What could we do to try to take this court back? And our, our plan is when we win in November 2020, is to expand the number of justices on the court in order to ameliorate this toxic impact that this current five justice majority has and has been going on. This has been a generation. It's not just Trump and it's not just Mitch McConnell. We haven't paid attention on the left to how partisan the court has become, but they have now strangled and will continue to strangle Every item on the progressive agenda, if we don't do something pretty drastic and pretty bold. But Talk to me about the logistics, the though.
1: Well, tell me what the procedure is to literally expand the number of people on
3: the court. Well, you know, it's a lot easier than you might think. I mean, keep in mind, the Republicans under Obama held the number of justices at eight. Yeah, they did. We've always thought the court was nine. (laughs) It's been nine in my entire lifetime, and it's been nine for most of the 20th century. Although, ostensibly, we had an
1: empty chair waiting
3: to be filled. And it should have been filled. Mm -hmm. But the GOP violated norms. They cheated. They stole that seat. And now, again, under GOP rule, now we're back to nine. Right. Our plan, and it's pretty easy to do, is... When we win in 2020, now this means you have to run the table. Uh, The Democrats have to take the House. We have to take the Senate. We have to take the White House. Mm -hmm. The president or somebody in Congress proposes a bill to expand the number of justices to 13. We expand it by four. All that has to happen is that passes both houses of Congress and it's signed by the president. A simple majority in both houses. It doesn't require a constitutional amendment. It doesn't require a supermajority. And just like that... We've saved voting rights and literally we've saved democracy. And I know that sounds hyperbolic, but where you, when you look at what the GOP has done to democracy in this country and how the aided and abetted they are in doing that by the Supreme Court, nothing less than that is what hangs in the balance.
1: Tell me how it works, however, when inevitably there's going to be a transfer of power again. Inevitably, we're going to have a Republican president again and go through the same roll. I mean, they can pack a 10-, 12-, 15-seat court, as well as they can pack a nine-point. So ultimately, what's the game? Uh,
3: this is a very common retort to this plan, and I totally get it. I mean, keep in mind, I you know I'm a lawyer by training. I respect institutions. I've respected that the number of justices has been nine. I respect that we have the give-and-take of democracy, where Republicans win and they get seats and Democrats win and they get seats. But those norms have been violated. And in doing so, the GOP has this stranglehold on power that they actually don't enjoy in terms of the popular will.
2: Mm-hmm. If,
3: you, if it wasn't for gerrymandered seats and it wasn't for the erosion of voting rights, Trump wouldn't have won. Yes, Many senators who are GOP would not win their seats. The, the Brennan Institute, which is a very, very reputable mainline think tank, estimates that if you got rid of all the gerrymandering and voter suppression, you would add 50 million voters to the rolls, wow. meaning that that GOP stranglehold is completely gone forever. So the chances of them ever retaining the kind of power to do the same thing we're talking about doing, that is packing the court just in this tit-for-tat way, is very unlikely to happen. And the other thing that would happen is maybe we would get a Republican Party back to sort of the sanity of Barry Goldwater (laughs) instead of the insanity of Mitch McConnell. And then we're back to a real functioning democracy again. Now you are dreaming big. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know it's a lot. I think it's much more likely that we'll get four more justices on the court than that we'll change the Republican Party. But you know, a girl can dream.
1: Yes, absolutely. I have to ask you about what kind of... You said that when I mentioned, okay, well, they can just pack another size court, you said, well, that's the big argument that I hear. What are the other big arguments that you hear?
3: The, the, The number one argument is this is just, you're going to trigger a death spiral for democracy. And so my my first response is what I said to you, and that is the numbers just don't bear that out. Mm-hmm. The Republicans will not be able to be in power again in the same way they are now, to do the same thing that we're talking about doing here. and what And the second response is they cheated and violated norms. And if we continue to abide by norms, we're chumps. Under these circumstances, when the other side refuses to play fair, if you continue to play fair, you're degrading the, the entire process. Mm-hmm. The other response we get very, very often from people is you shouldn't call it pack the courts because folks remember Roosevelt. They think packing the courts is somehow gaming the system. And I'm sympathetic to that. I had my own conversation with our executive director, Aaron Belkin, about the name. But I actually have to respect Aaron. He said, you know what? Let's not hide the ball. Let's talk about what we want to do. We want to add justices to the court, and that Mm -hmm. is known as packing the court. Although, to be fair, it usually is used with a negative connotation, so I was surprised at the name. It is used with a negative connotation because the way Roosevelt did it, it failed. He tried to add justices to the court. This is Franklin Delano Roosevelt to save the New Deal. He tried to add justices and he failed. So it's now had this negative cast ever since then. But, but Roosevelt's threat to pack the court actually tempered the most conservative elements on the Supreme Court at the time. And there's a very strong argument that though he tempered those most conservative elements and saved the most important elements of the New Deal. And people don't even understand. The New Deal was wages for 40 hours a week. Not having to work 80 or 90 hours a week, being able to be paid overtime, unions being able to thrive, being able to have time off for sick leave. These were, these were the elements of the New Deal that the Supreme Court at the time rejected because they were like, hey, this is free market. People should be able to do whatever they want. We now have reverence for those principles of actually providing safe, sane workplaces for individuals. That's all part of the New Deal that was saved by the, even the threat of packing the court. You know, I, I, I know this is a tangent,
1: but I, I just, I'm constantly amazed at the revisiting of history when you hear that Roosevelt, in fact, was leading a massive failure and would, would have gone down the tubes if we hadn't been rescued by a world war instead. It, you know, read your history if you mm-hmm. want to find the difference there. But the point there is that the narratives are really powerful, and they play on a, a great deal of ignorance. And a great deal of willing suspension of belief
3: of disbelief that, that is i wish that were not true mm-hmm. and yet that is the reality that we're in and i understand that so every day we have a conversation about should we change the name because the name triggers a narrative that is not historically accurate but nevertheless Makes it appear that we're playing we're, we're we're playing some sort of game. We're cheating in some way, and so we're going to go back and forth about that. I, I th- we're going to stay we're staying with the name now because we want to be honest about yes what we're talking about doing is expanding the number of justices on the court that is commonly known as packing the court and if we changed our name to expand the court. Save the court, retake the court, people would say, well, aren't you just talking about court packing? And then you're really, you're back in the very same, you're back in the very same situation you were before. So we want to, I guess we want to lead with our vulnerability, which is only nomenclature. Mm -hmm. And then really just hope that people will engage about what's the vision How do we want to change and save democracy, and how do we want to save this court? Let's have that conversation, and let's not get all tied up in that we call it this certain thing.
1: One of the difficulties that you probably face with this is that the center has moved to the right. A lot of liberals, quote-unquote liberals, particularly a lot of Democrats, are now more conservative than you expect when you hear people decrying, oh, the liberal Democrats. I can imagine you're going to see some reticence from them. We don't expect the Republicans to support this idea at all, but you're going to run into some protests from
3: some of the more centrist, quote, conservative Democrats as well. How do you win them over? The conversation we want to have really with anyone, I mean, the, the questions I would ask any, any voter I talk to would be, what are the things that you most care about in this country? And most people will say health care, the climate, being able to support my family, being able to have a future, and and particularly on, yes, this is probably on the more moderate to liberal side, being able to assure that a woman has reproductive choice, being able to maintain the gains we've made on LGBTQ rights, and finally having a sane immigration policy. And I would just finish that by ending mass incarceration, which does nobody any good and is costing us billions of dollars for nothing if we invested that early the difference that that would make if they tick off any part of that list my response to them would be there will be nothing that will be gained on any of those issues that you care about under this current supreme court majority regime and in because, fact possible losses and po- oh, absolutely set, setbacks and losses mm. so if we're going to move forward if we're going to have a truly vibrant democracy, which is hanging by a thread. And that's a little hyperbolic, but I, I don't think it's too far afield. I don't think afield. it is. <laughs> because when you, have, when you have a president who lost the popular vote and yet has convinced millions of Americans that, in fact, he won the popular vote and there was voter fraud, which is, does not exist, right? when facts don't matter anymore that is the first pillar that you knock down when it comes to saving a democracy democracy only thrives if people believe there's facts and then there are lies yes and there might be you might have differences about how, what the facts mean mm-hmm. and how they should be operationalized, translating the facts but, you, but but you don't disagree about the actual facts and that's what but that's how dictators retain a hold on power and gain power is that they make people believe facts are malleable and this Supreme Court is part and parcel of this new kind of way of thinking about what democracy means. And, and for them to treat a corporation as a person, for example,
0: amazing, or for, or for them yeah. to
3: look at a state with, that has been heavily gerrymandered and there's no doubt in the world that blacks have been suppressed from voting and to say, well, there's no more reason to have the Voting Rights Act. Yes. That is, that is an ignorance of the actual facts or, or the
1: bizarre coincidence that the black districts have four-hour lines to vote <laughs> and the
3: richer more white districts you know you
1: can go in and cast your vote and go
3: home yep all those people just show up to vote and none of the white people do or the white people show up at a different time and and people just believe in that in a narrative that any if they were just just sit back and just sit in a place of rationality would be like that makes no sense mm-hmm. and so our view at Pack the Courts is the last bastion of saving a democracy has always been our court. Even when people had wildly different views about where we should be on criminal justice issues or on reproductive choice or on LGBT issues, mm-hmm. the court had absolute fidelity that the Constitution is there to provide equality to all. And if the court abandons that principle the the, that last thread that last bastion that last firewall between democracy and anarchy goes away and i don't want to watch that happen without a fight
1: it's called pack the courts as opposed to pack the court so are we talking about lower courts as well
3: we're what we're witnessing right now is a packing of the courts Uh, nobody's paying attention to by the mcconnell controlled gop and people are not paying attention to it And it is a packing the courts that – we want to pack the courts through a legitimate means, Mm -hmm. a bill in Congress signed by the president, and then nominees get appointed by the Senate. What's happening right now is the lower federal courts are being packed with the most ideologically extreme nominees I've seen in my lifetime, the most unqualified nominees I've seen in my lifetime, getting rid of all the rules to – potentially stop those appointees from being confirmed to the court in order to because McConnell knows what I'm talking about he knows the GOP does not enjoy enough popular support to win at the ballot box so they are doing everything they can to consolidate power now and then we will be in a total upside down kind of apartheid where we will be ruled by a minority of people in power Because they were put in power by breaking the rules and the rest of us will have very little to say about it because all of our major institutions will be controlled by people they put in power. And that's what's happening with the courts right now. So at the earliest opportunity, when we have control of the branches of government, we want to do everything we can to either undo that or at least appoint whoever we can to Mm -hmm. whatever empty seats there might be that remain.
1: I have so little time left. This hour has gone so fast. I, I want to tie this work that you're doing now to your earlier work because you were working with the National Lesbian Group for so many years and so heavily associated with that. And over that kind of time, one accrues a lot of power and legitimacy. And you've kind of given that up so that you can work, work in this new arena with what I'm guessing is, is a small sacrifice of, of that, that power and legitimacy. Why did you make that choice?
3: I appreciate that, Angie, and I. It, it, is, it was the privilege of my life to lead the National Center for Lesbian Rights for 22 years and to be a part of some of the most groundbreaking work on behalf, on behalf of uh, LGBTQ folks in this country, including most principally and well-known, winning marriage first in California and then nationwide, pushing back Prop 8 and winning, nation, uh, winning marriage nationwide. And after 22 years... In any position, I think anyone would look around and say, gosh, am I still occupying the right seat? And I really felt like it was time for a different kind of leader for NCLR, uh, a different kind of LGBTQ leader, um, someone who uh, could walk the talk of representing multiple communities as, as fierce an ally as I might be on race issues and on criminal justice issues and on immigration issues. Um... I haven't been a part of the criminal justice system, I'm not an immigrant, I'm not a woman of color. I have a tremendous amount of privilege and I wanted, I I deployed that as much as I could in the service of more vulnerable communities, but I really felt like it was time for me to exit the stage and and a new leader to come in and do this next generation of particularly LGBTQ work in this country across a whole range of identities. And then I looked around and had conversations with my good colleague, Aaron Belkin, who's our executive director, who I knew from his work on Don't Ask, Don't Tell and trying to end the transgender military ban that Trump imposed. And he had this very bold, provocative idea. And I felt like everything I worked for to win a measure of dignity and justice for LGBTQ people could be crushed by this court. Mm-hmm. And and I love this country so much. I love being a lawyer. I became a lawyer because I saw the Supreme Court at the vanguard of protecting individual rights and liberty. They were the last backstop between us and tyranny. And I feel like the court has lost that. And now they are part of, at least the majority of the court, are part of what, what are essentially tyrannical elements. And so if I can play a role in elevating a conversation about how important the court is, and even if people disagree, at least they care about the court. And if that's all I achieve, that will be important. And it was, it's worth it to me to continue to do work that's consequential. I don't see how I could do anything other than that. And to continue to do work that um, makes me really, really happy that I'm a lawyer. Can you tell me,
1: what the vibe has felt like, how it's changed over the years with the activists and the co-workers that you had. There's there's always that generational feel. The people that you were working with toward the end of your ten- tenure came up with a whole different set of rights and a whole different set of perceptions than you did. How did that change the vibe in the office?
3: That's such a great question. I We've always had a very diverse staff at NCLR and when I left we had 29 staff, many of them young, many of them staff of color, some of them transgendered, um, some of them not queer-identified. And, and what I remember feeling so much in the office, so much different than when I started in 1994, was just a sense that this is the way it should be. It, not the way it, it needed to be at some distant point in the future, but that what we were demanding, a sense of justice, a sense of belonging, not just toleration, but a sense of celebration and belonging and place and dignity, for who we were as queer-identified people, that was a birthright. It wasn't something we should have to fight for. It is something we own. Mm-hmm. And that that framing, I see it in my kids. I have a 22-year-old son and a 17-year-old daughter, and they have gay friends and transgender friends, and they this is no big deal to them. And that seeing that and knowing that they're gonna be in charge in 10 or 15 or 20 years, I feel like no matter what happens with Pack the Courts, no matter what happens with this nightmare of uh, the Trump regime, we're gonna have a a new generation of kids who are so used to working across identities and having so many different people in their lives. And when they're in power, um, we're gonna be okay.
1: Kate Kendall, formerly of the National Center for Lesbian Rights, now with Pack the Courts at packthecourts.org. And that's a wrap for today's broadcast. Thanks to Brad and Desi, they return after the holiday, which I hope you are enjoying thoroughly. I will see you sometime soon. And until then, good luck, world.